Welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again, we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner, and today I'm joined by Charlie Waite, a leading and award-winning landscape photographer who runs his own business, Charlie Waite's Landscape Photography. Charlie, welcome. Great to have you on the programme. Well, indeed. Very complimentary. Thank you for having me on, as they say. Absolute pleasure. Now, Charlie, one of the issues that has recently brought the topic of effective leadership under the microscope, of course, is the recent COVID-19 outbreak, where we've seen some contrasting approaches from some of the world's leaders. Um, We've had Giuseppe Conte in Italy, for example, who put the whole country on lockdown. And then we have Boris Johnson in the UK, where measures have intensified, but we are taking a less hands-on approach overall. The money's there and procedures are in place, but in many ways, we are just waiting to sort of see what happens. Now, taking that away from politics, which approach do you generally prefer to take when dealing with difficulties? Do you prefer to dive straight in and get on top of the situation, or would you tend to sort of let things play out a bit and see how they develop before taking action? Well, firstly, that's quite an interesting question. Very few of us have had an opportunity to formulate any sort of coherent answer because um, we, we, we ha- our, the decision-making process has been um, rather an interesting one. Uh, firstly, we have our evidence is, is rather difficult to actually hold, to hold down, as it were. It comes from the media. It's sometimes quite mixed. And one, one, we have all absolutely longed to be able to have somebody who spoke to us uh, clearly, decisively, and with absolutely in, indisputable proven information and that has not been available and the reason it's not been available is because it probably doesn't exist all that people seem to have at the moment is the number of poor souls who've actually lost their lives and the number of cases so but in the in the in from a landscape photographer's uh, perspective thankfully um, I don't live in a city, but that you know, lots of people do. But thank, I, I mean, I'm nothing against cities, but of course, I'm in the I'm in the outside world. I'm outside a lot of the time, and my business depends entirely on people acquiring my photographs. So the only time I probably get a bit tripped up is where I have an exhibition, and the exhibition opening night, the opening preview, whatever it is may be affected in terms of people thinking, I don't want to be um, in the company of a large number of people who I've never met and don't have anything to do with. And so it could be that I'm vulnerable in such an environment. So it, I think um, that's probably the only time that I'm, I would find it difficult. But my main, my, I think the main most important thing I'd probably say is the moment we get a directive that's voluntary, uh, we maybe being British people, we might not take it that seriously. Whereas in continental European countries, um, you know, it's much more um, fierce, if you like, more strident. For example, you'd be fined if you don't supply an ex- a reason for going out. And uh, if you're over 70, I think we all know it increases the odds of, um, of becoming ill. It's a, it's an interesting question. Very few people, and I'm included, I'm afraid, uh, have really had a chance to formulate an answer. If uh, personally, I, th- I think I would, I would, I would probably endorse um, Her Majesty's government advice and um, not congregate, as they, they, everybody has been saying. That that does seem to make fundamental sense to me. 
Certainly. And um, it's left business leaders, especially with a great deal to uh, ponder as they try to direct um, their businesses through this um, current climate. Um, Drawing on your own experience in your own profession, uh, Charlie, um, given especially all the experience that you have lecturing across Europe and across the UK and the United States as well, do you have any advice for leaders who are facing difficult situations at the moment? Well, I I suppose I do. And and that is to have confidence in your in your probably have confidence in your feelings because we're all turned to, aren't we? Everybody everybody turns to leaders and say, well, you should know. You tell us. We don't. This is not our department. So um, when it comes to my um, particular community, which is uh, landscape photographers, of which there are many, I mean, I, I would say that everybody is a photographer. Uh, they may not do it professionally, but they all love photography, and that's a very interesting subject in that everybody feels a need to own a particular uh, experience that they've um, confronted uh, and emotionally. So they use the camera to um, to retain that, not just a memory, but to retain the, the feelings that they had at the time. But when it comes to people looking to, toward us for uh, for guidance and so on, um, my, I think I would I think I would speak probably in the way that other other leaders in their field, if I may be called that. Um, would speak, which is to be aware, be very, very aware that this virulent, virulent um, virus, and we remember SARS and and going right back to other Ebola and to others. I, I think it's terribly, terribly important to just say, right, I'm I'm going to take this very, very seriously, and whether it's a, a, a paranoia or overreaction or hysterics or whatever it is. I must make my own decision, and um, my my decision to landscape photographers and to photographers generally would be to um, to abide by by what we've been guided to do, and not go against it. It just simply doesn't doesn't make sense. But Absolutely. people are finding it extremely difficult at the moment, as we know, and it's impacting very very negatively on many people's businesses. Stock photography used to exist uh, until recently when people could sell their images and they could lie low and watch in in the form of passive income. They could watch money being paid to them for reproduction rights for their images. But um, that no longer exists because now people can buy photographs from the internet and it's very, very easy and you you can't depend on income through uh, reproduction rights sales of your photographs. So the only other way is teaching. And uh, and producing um, art photographs and having exhibitions and collectors buying your photography, but um, at, at least landscape photographers are outside uh, in the fresh air and um, they're communing, as it were, with the beautiful landscape, which is still intact. Um, hopefully, it won't. The virus will not affect um, wildlife, and uh, but it, it's a very difficult situation. Yeah. Hopefully, we, we, with my view, we should just uh, take advice from those of us, those people who, who have an understanding of these things, scientists in particular, and also people who speak with experience, uh, who have seen such events take place in the past. I was thinking of the plague of London. You know, what is it? Mm. 1665, scarce a soul was left alive. 1666, London was burnt to rotten sticks. We remember that. But if people are able to, I wish we could have people on on our media channels who could speak with experience of previous viruses that swept through nations 
And there's probably some, um, I wouldn't mind betting, there's, there's probably some sort of relationship between what took place in those days and, and the precautions that were adopted. They may, they may not have been quite what they are now, but I'm surprised we don't refer back to some of those and, and some, of the, some of the things that happened uh, in previous uh, situations, rather like this one. Absolutely. And um, it's um, only for us to really hope that the landscape photography profession doesn't become affected by uh, the uh, the virus as well. Um, moving a focus slightly uh, back onto the landscape photography profession, of course, you started out very much um, in uh, the field of uh, British uh, television, didn't you, Charlie? Um, starting I did out- a little bit in theatre. Yes, a little bit. For about 10 or 12 years, I did. Definitely. And, um, but starting out there, I mean, did you imagine that you'd end up being um, a leading player in the landscape photography field, as it were? Uh, well, that's an that's a interesting question, uh, but as all questions are. Um, no, I didn't. And yet at the same time, I remember being photographed myself by a, a well-known, a marvellous photographer, a portrait photographer called Mark Gudgeon. Every actor um, in the business needs to have a photograph of themselves that their agent can use, and a portrait photograph that their agent can use um, until they become, you know, well known. But during during the time that they're what we used to call jobbing actors, the agent needs an image that will compete with other images in a big casting directory called the spotlight. And uh, actors um, find it extremely difficult to be photographed. Then they're not egomaniacs as a lot of people think they are. They're perfectly normal people, and uh, who are just doing a job. And for some reason or another, maybe something, something, a play or a movie or a television they're involved becomes a, in, involved in becomes a very, very successful uh, piece of work, and they're rocketed to stardom, which is something they could never have been prepared for. And for for many, for a huge many, it's almost a form of imprisonment. Um, and so I, I feel that those people who are very well known are, are deified almost. But in fact, they're just like you and me doing a job. And they actually find that fame becomes almost something of a curse. They might benefit financially, but their, their privacy is smashed into. And I, I find that um, very difficult. Uh, and I do understand. I'm not, I'm not particularly famous but I, at all. But I know that actors find it difficult. So when I photographed actors, I became, sorry, I rephrased that. After I had um, needed to have photographs of myself, when I gave up the theatre, I began to um, photograph actors. And I knew that um, how they feel, because I myself had been uh, experiencing, had experienced this invasive process of the camera staring at you. And, um, and you feel all at sea, you feel out of control, you don't seem to have any uh, feeling of self-worth. It's extremely difficult to deal with this very imposing process of the camera staring down at you. And, um, and it's, it's hard to suddenly um, gather uh, sufficient self-confidence to be able to tell the camera that you're okay and that you are, you are good and you can learn your lines and you are a professional and, and you can act. And, it, and it's very, very difficult. And so I used to spend um, probably half an hour, 40 minutes, um, encouraging the actors that I photographed to to rediscover a sense of self-worth and not feel a victim. The camera is very easy at making you feel, um, you know, very, very self-conscious. And of course, when you're in a studio and you're photographed by somebody like me, which I used to do a lot of, um, the first thing you think of is, I want to get out of here, I want to leave. And um, 
and so I, I I spend a lot of time encouraging my my actors to gather uh, sufficient self confidence and a sense of self worth to give that camera absolute hell and and dominate it. And as a as a consequence, I like to think <laughs> that quite a few of my actors um, felt not relaxed because it's a sort of um, it's a tussle between you and the camera. It's not at all about being relaxed and hoping when we get a good photograph. It's about imposing the actor imposing themselves onto the camera and not the other way around. So I uh, I miss I miss that. I used to enjoy engaging with actors. They're a wonderful group of people, immensely talented. As certainly are uh, all over the world, and British actors, so many are never heard of and live in a degree of obscurity because they never get the opportunities. But So then I, I moved from actors to landscape, which is rather unusual uh, <laughs> turn of events, really. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's quite interesting, that story that you just told about um, sort of grappling between the, the, who takes the lead, really, the, the photographer and the actor, and the actor has to really kind of um, be the one who dominates the camera, as it were. It's absolutely Most fascinating, definitely. that. Um, for somebody who is going to, or aspiring rather, let me rephrase that, for somebody who is starting out um, in a photography role, be it with actors or be it in the landscaping profession, um, would you um, give any advice to them if they were hoping to be as leading a figure within that industry as yourself? Well, if I, I, yes, I would actually. Um, I think the first thing that I would I would recommend is um, if you feel um, a sense of a great sense of affinity with the landscape, with the natural world. If you're, as I call it, honouring it and wondering at it and and relishing it and being amazed by it, then the impulse surely is to is to um, produce an image that uh, has parity with your own human emotional experience. And um, if you see a result of a photograph, and this happens to many of us, you see the result of your photograph of somewhere absolutely beautiful um, that moved you immensely, and it doesn't, it seems to be soulless and almost sterile, then that relationship in some way didn't... um, didn't manifest, it didn't materialize, you have to go and have another go. It could be that you didn't attend to enough um, elements, you didn't, the image wasn't coherent, it it just, it's certainly no good pointing a 10,000 pound camera to a a landscape that in your view has merit of being photographed because it's not really a, the camera is important, you need good optics and so on. Essentially, it's about perception. Landscape photography is about perception and and it's probably it's, that could probably be the case in, in all forms of photography. So it's about noticing. It's about noticing 360 degrees, and it's about full immersion. And um, the, the resulting image must, must, as I said a moment ago, have parity with, um, with your human emotional experience. Otherwise, what else are you photographing? Why else are you photographing? I mean, I, it's fascinating to know that every single person alive today even children are beginning to feel and have always done this, felt this, a need to they respond to something beautiful, a child's laughter, a beautiful landscape, a, a shimmering river in the landscape, or a wonderful lake with marvelous reflections of the sky, a beautiful forest. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it doesn't matter where it is. But if you respond to it, the next, uh, the next moment, or rather the response, 
then is converted into the need to own that experience in the form of um, a photograph or a poem uh, or a painting. But most people now certainly have a, have a camera in the form of an iPhone. Mm. So they produce a photograph. And uh, then, as I say, they, they analyze it and they hope that it's going to, um, it's going to evoke their, their, their experience they had. So I, my advice would be to establish a signature and a style and, and not show lots of photographs on an iPad or an iPhone and on a monitor. The, the images are almost imprisoned in uh, hard drives, external hard drives, and the poor things can never get out. So make prints. Nobody is printing anymore. It's it's a, well they are luckily I am and I'm encouraging people I shout it from the rooftops to get people to print because it's only then when you print get the prints into hospitals make prints for for your for, for exhibitions make prints it's only then that the viewer your audience can have a tangible relationship with the image that you made it doesn't work seeing an image. Uh, with transmitted light on a monitor or on an iPhone that people are, you know, almost looks like a nervous tick when people are scraping on their phone trying to find a, a picture to show you. And then it's only about, you know, two or three inches. So I feel very, very strongly about establishing your own signature, having a portfolio of images, not on an iPad. Don't give them, yes, give them your website. But when you go to meet somebody who you might, hope will give you a commission to, to produce a book or images for a book or whatever it may be. Take a portfolio of your best work. Present present your work beautifully. No more than about 12. And you'll be memorable. As you leave the interview, you'll be memorable for that particular, for your particular style. Not a jack of all trades. And um, hopefully the phone will ring as opposed to not. <laughs> so Absolutely. there you are. That would, be, that would be my recommendation. Mm, incredible advice. Um, now, before we wrap things up, uh, Charlie, um, could you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself or Charlie Waite Photography and what you really hope to achieve in that time? Yes, my I have a very, very strong um, belief. It's passionate. I mean, everybody uses that word these days. Um, I would like to see more landscape, more photographs of the landscape uh, especially the British landscape, but world landscapes um, that are that will move people, and that perhaps can be seen more in hospitals. And um, I, I strongly believe that um, an image of a beautiful landscape, sometimes regarded as literal, decorative, representational, or what's the other word? I can't think of it, but that's three that are good enough. Which I I think they're rather. Um, they're not condemning, but they're not they're not the best words to use for landscape photography. I think landscape photography, when people look at them, those images, if can can feel really elevated. And I would like to see more landscape photographs, most especially in hospitals. I'm working with various different hospitals, and in particular, um, one man who I found very influential, who's done some research, a lot of research, an enormous amount of research over many years in the U.S. Um, establishing what um, beautiful landscape photographs, what what effect they can have these images on people's health outcome, on patients' health outcome. It makes them feel better. It it makes them feel more hopeful. Uh, these images, and that's very important. Images of sky, 
of um, of water, of open openness, um, beauty always in the front line, and not challenging in, in images that are that are distressing to look at and, and complicated and and might people might find unnerving, unsettling. But beauty, there's nothing wrong with beauty. You may not see it in the fine art galleries, uh, but it certainly is something that people do absolutely love and um, it elevates them and, and gives them a sense of hope. So I would like landscape photography to be um, more recognized. It already is hugely recognized. I'd like people to have more exhibitions. Um, I'd like every city to um, to be able to embrace it. And I, I have to credit um, the galleries who are there already and the, and the many, many photographic clubs and societies in the United Kingdom, all of whom are heralding landscape photo- photography. It is the most popular form of photography. There's no question about it when magazines decide to run um, a, a feature on landscape photography, their sales go up. So I think more people should photograph, not just snapping, but use the camera as a conduit to be able to engage more profoundly with the landscape and then enjoy the rewards that come from looking at that result. And in the old days, we used to say, I hope that comes out. <laughs> when we press the shutter, we used to say, I hope that comes out. And what, I'm re- what I really believe in is that what that means is that, it, that it, it actually did capture, to use a very old term, it captured everything that, that we were captivated by in the landscape. And um, so I, I would encourage more people to do more photography don't be too preoccupied with you know with a kit, but remember you do need good optics. Don't just use the phone because one day somebody might say, "I'd like a big print of that," and the, the quality may not be good enough, the resolution and so on. But pick up the camera and look and see, see more and and see into the depth of the landscape that you're looking at, and um, and and walk away more enriched as a as a consequence. Absolutely incredible. Um, Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and it would be fantastic to uh, maybe get you back on in a few months' time just to see how things have pan out and whether those hopes have been borne out indeed. Um, thank you so much for your time. No, it's a delight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for, for uh, having me on, as they say. It's been a pleasure as well, Charlie. Um, it's now time for Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus dress who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, 
uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's 
easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance. And it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
And I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no how it played out i've never seen anything i've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life and for it to be the world cup final was quite extraordinary i know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because i yeah well so was, <laughs> was i yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now in your in your wife's memory you established the ruth strauss foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them. 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it if you if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your Mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say... But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re- wearing red so it w- what, what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> like, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.